Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Rosiel and my guest today is Renee Brinkerhoff. She is the CEO and founder of Valkyrie Racing. She is racing on every single continent in her custom-made rally car. She has raced for over 30 days. She has raced over 10,000 miles in specific races and it's absolutely incredible. And she's using her platform to now go and help more people around the world with uh, child trafficking rings. So an incredible story here. Renee's an amazing person and I'm so grateful I had the opportunity to chat with her. So please enjoy this conversation with Renee Brinkerhoff. Here we but go, and we're live. Not, not messing around now. We're ready to go. Today on For the Love of Sports, I have Renee Brinkerhoff. She's a rally racer and a philanthropist. Renee, thanks for hanging out with me today. Thanks, Michael. Glad to be a guest. The pleasure is all mine. You've done way, way, way cooler things than I've ever done and really ever plan on doing, and I'm excited to ask you some questions about it. Renee, um, I guess, are you the owner of Valkyrie Racing? Probably should have asked that before we went live, huh? Sure. Yes, I am. Okay. Valkyrie Racing. Valkyrie Racing. Uh -huh. uh, so I'm excited to see what the heck goes into founding, owning, and creating a racing team. We'll get to that in a little bit. But first question I have for everybody, Renee, on For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? Well, in particular, racing, I just think it's uh, such a reflection of life in so many ways, and it gets us connected to our inner self and our soul and our spirit and our enthusiasm and takes us to places we don't usually get to go to in regular life. Yeah, it's uh, especially, you know, again, what, what we will be talking about, um, you know, all the continents that you've been on and all the places that you've raced and all the incredible rallies that you've been through. I, I just, I totally agree with you. There's one thing about racing. It's, you know, like kind of, I mean, what is more human, right? It's me versus you. And we're trying to go fast. Like that, that's it. Like, and I feel like it's just one of those things. It's like fighting and it's just you and obviously your car. And I'm very, very excited to talk about your heart car. Cause I know you love that thing a lot, but I always just think, you know, racing is just very interesting. And, and now you take it kind of to another level. Um, I just have a couple figures written down here, 10,000 miles and 36 days. Um, why, where do these numbers come from and why did you want to do something like this? Okay. So I think that's referencing the peaking to Paris. Yes. Right. Which was a rally we did a year ago. And so that we did that race because, you know, we're racing around the world. We're taking the car on every continent and peaking to Paris was Asia and Europe. And, you know, part of it's scheduling and how the car's prepped and what it can do for each event. And so that was our Asia and Europe challenge. And it was fantastic. Actually, at day 36, when we crossed the finish line in Paris, because we'd had this massive engine problem in Mongolia, I wanted to go back right then and there. Get me back to Beijing. Let's do it again. Let's do it right. So 36 days actually did not feel that long at all in that in that situation. That is insane. I mean, what 
what is day like 18 like right we're halfway through and you know you still have you know almost another month to go half a month to go i mean what are what are the emotions you're going through what are the the feelings that you have at what point do you just kind of i mean i've driven across the country before here in the united states and it's taken a couple days i don't know like 30 something hours um but 36 days of racing i mean what is that like it's just i think it's whether you do a seven day event like when we go to Mexico and do the La Carrera, or you're doing 36 days, you still just look at each day as that day. And each each part of that day, like each speed section or special stage when you're racing, you just look at that part of it. And that's just how you do it. How do you eat an elephant, right? One bite at a time. And you just look at the portion of the day and each day. And then by the time it's over, you've done 36 days. It, you, I don't think it, it wasn't that hard, really. It was, I think, just perspective on a lot of it. And like, are you listening to music or do you have a couple good podcasts that you're really enjoying along the way? I feel like you have, I mean, just nothing. No, no, no. It's uh, because you have to keep your focus. For instance, in Russia, you were saying, what are you doing on day 18? Well, day 18, I'm guessing because we spent a lot of time driving through Russia was probably in Russia. They drive. They're mad, crazy drivers. There's no way you're going to be distracted with something because, They've got kids all over their lap and they're changing lanes where there's no changing and there's semi trucks coming straight at you. And you've got to be paying attention all day, every day. So at least in this car, in my car, um, and because of the challenges we were having with it every day and the engine trouble we were having for almost the whole event, there wasn't a lot of downtime of just recreating, that's for sure. No, I, I can understand that. Yes, you definitely want to make sure you keep your eyes on the road, especially going through all these different countries where the laws are different. And obviously, as you said, the people drive a little different. So I think that part's pretty. Uh, so I guess let's let's talk about you for a second. So obviously, we're, we're talking about these races, all the incredible things that you've done, all the incredible places you've been. What made you want to get into something like this? Where do you see this? And you're just like, this is what I need to do. I tell people when you when someone asks this question, right, because when does someone start racing at 56? And especially if you've had no racing background, and then if you add you're a woman and all these kinds of things, it's a bit odd, right? So for me, it was basically, it was a one-liner. I heard a voice in my head that I'd been that had been going off for over 30 years, and that was one day I'm gonna race a car. I had no idea I'd been saying that. And then when I heard it, it was like, oh, great. Now I've got to go do it. So really, it all started with a have to. And then it became a want to. At first, it was I got to fulfill this thing I've been saying. And then I got bit by the bug and it all just got a life of its own. So that's what my beginning was. And I love that, though. But where does that like, you know, as you said, 30 years ago, that thought came up. Was it just kind of, you know, you were watching F1 one day and you're like, that would be kind of cool. I want to race a car. Or or was there someone in your past? Like, where where does that idea even come from? I know I did not grow up around racing. I did not have any background in racing, knew nothing really about cars. So there's nothing that I can connect it to in that way. I think because of the career path I took, which Maybe people think it's odd I call it career, but it was. I home-educated four kids. They all got into really good schools, competitive schools with scholarships. That was my job. And I took it super seriously. Um, There was no playtime. There was no me time because that was my, like, 60-hour-a-week job. And so the things that maybe I would have pursued or would have pursued, I couldn't. So I think I created this subconscious thing to get me through, get me through. Because I had a very adventurous upbringing. I lived um, in a family where my dad took us to 
sort of extreme places to live. I lived during in Laos during the Vietnam War. I lived in Hong Kong during the Cultural Revolution when there were riots and the Red Guards. And then I lived in Taiwan when I was really little, which was at the height of the Cold War. So I had, and then if you throw in all, all the experiences that were day to day that my dad and mom had our, us experience. So I had a lot of adventure in my blood, but because of my homeschooling career path with my kids, right? There was no outlet for that. And I think I just created that in my head. So I had something to think about, to dream about, to look forward to one day. It was like, maybe one day I will do this. And it had to be way out there. And that's what I came up with for whatever reason. I don't know, but that's what I said. Well, it <laughs> works clearly. And you're doing a lot of incredible things with this opportunity, with with this idea that, as you said, it kind of just you, you planted that seed a few years ago and now it's blossomed into this incredible tree is redwood, if I may. And, you know, all mm -hmm. the opportunities that come with it. And I think, you know, you bring up, um, you know, home educating your children. I think a lot of parents are going through that right now, especially with the pandemic and being stuck at home and understanding how hard teachers jobs are. So, yes. 60 hours a week. I'm sure it was much, much more than that, um, considering you're always on. So we do appreciate what you did there. I'm sure your kids do as well. And so so you, you have this idea to race. And that sounds like fun. That sounds like a blast. All right. So we'll we'll get a car. We'll go on a race. This is great. And now it's turned into you're racing on every continent. You've done these, as we already said, you know, a 10,000 mile race. Like at what like the idea to race one time versus starting a race team and racing across the world like where how do we then get to that point as you said you got bit by the bug after that first race was it just you know i'm i'm all in and i'm ready to go my, yeah exactly so in 2013 was my first race in my car so i went in 2012 put my mm -hmm. feet in the water a little bit had a, some experience in someone else's car and it was in the La Carrera Panamericana, which I don't know if you all know, it's seven days, 2000 miles, you're racing through Mexico and it's it's 30% attrition. That's how you know many cars don't finish. People go year after year, don't finish the race. There's accidents daily, there's deaths, there's medevacs out. I mean, it's a, it's a super intense event. That was my first race. That was my baptism by fire is what I call it. And um, we ended up winning our class our first year out of my car, which was unbelievable, way beyond any kind of expectation, obviously. And we made history in the race. And it was this was such a transformative experience for me. I went through this whole metamorphosis in my life as a person and finding out about myself on so many different levels, you know, facing fear every day, shaking uncontrollably, dealing with that, uh, having this whole amazing team experience doing really well and finding out your strengths, your weaknesses, all these things, right? It became just like life. It became like, it became living. It was like living for the first time in a sense it, for myself and feeling all those kinds of emotions and struggles in a week of uh, you, a whole lifetime of kind of experiences in a week. So I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And so we just, we went back We went back three times and we podiumed every time. Um, we're typically the only woman driver and there's anywhere from 70 to hundred male drivers. And we got this voice because you know, we were a little odd, right? You know, who does that? Like I was saying, a woman at that age, and then to have that kind of success. And it was, then we had this whole philanthropic thing that we really cared about, which was kids being trafficked. So it was, we started brainstorming, how can we meld the two together and what can we do to have a bigger voice, a bigger impact, 
let's go global. What does that look like? You know, well, let's take this car and let's put it in the toughest races it can be in, places where the cars never raced before, they've never had a woman driver. Or let's just throw in as many things that make us different, stand out as possible, try to get a bigger voice, get, therefore get a bigger impact and be able to affect more change. And that's sort of the roots of all of that is taking that success and then let's say, let's let's do it big. Let's really try to do something here. And that was that was the beginning of it. And I love the way you put it. You had a lifetime of emotion in seven days, right? Like that, yeah. that just has to be just the ups and the downs, as you were saying, the trials, the tribulations that come with it. But finishing that race, as you said, you know, first in your class, that has to be absolutely incredible. And you keep, you keep saying we. So I'm curious, you know, there's you. There's your car, of course. I'm, I'm sure she is, is absolutely fantastic. And we'll get there in a second. Who else is on this team like how, how does one of these race I'll, I'll be very honest i've never other than the footage that deb sent me so thank you to her uh, i haven't really seen one of these races before so what really goes into a seven day two thousand mile race or a 36 day ten thousand mile race like what what is necessary what goes into it and what it, what team members do you have there to support you and make sure you get through something like this you have to have a car builder right you got to have a car then you got to build your car so it can actually compete in an event like that. And in endurance rally racing, which is what we do, you have to, and if you want to be competitive, so you're not only building a car that is strong and will endure, but you want to be fast, right? So there's that whole balance. You've got to have a really good car builder. And I've had several people through the years, every one of them, and, and they still collaborate with each other. So if, you know, whoever I had in the beginning, talks to the next person. They are always still learning about the car and working together and collaborating, which is amazing. And I've met, met lifelong friends through them. And then you always have to have a navigator who is also called a co-driver and they sit next to you in the car for the whole event and they call your turns. And so that person is super, super key. I mean, I could just you know, go at length talking about that, that, that person, how important they are and the chemistry of that, their level of risk, they're wanting to be competitive. All that has to meld together. I've seen people on the side of the road yelling and screaming at each other and them saying, I'm not getting back in the car with you. So you, you have to have that right person in the car with you. So there's your car builder, there's your navigator, and then you have to have uh, a mechanic. And sometimes you have to have two mechanics and you've got to take all your parts so that you can fix your car along the way. If there's any way of fixing it, you're going to fix it so you can get to the finish. And sometimes that means they stay up all night working on the car and then they trade off during the day getting sleep to try to make up for the loss of sleep and what may happen the next night and having to fix the car. So, and in some races like the Peking to Paris, there was, we didn't have any mechanics. They had the, the race mechanics who you could quasi rely upon but we had to take our own parts our own tools and everything in the car so that's pretty much it you've got your you know car builder you've got your navigator and you've got your mechanics and then i've got my daughter christina who works with me so it's the two of us so when i say us a lot or we it's the two of us that are valkyrie racing uh, she's my youngest of four kids she has her degree from um, usc film school and helps with all the photography and filming but then she does the marketing and she she does everything i mean there's just two of us so we're constantly changing our hats and we do all different kind of jobs so that's the we of valkyrie racing and then the valkyrie gives is our philanthropic arm so we do, we do all of that i can't believe it you guys are incredible and whatever you're doing let's uh keep it going and if you have any of that extra coffee that you're drinking because it seems like you have some <laughs> stuff, something's running through your blood and something's running oh, through your yeah. veins i think i think it might just be the fact that you love what you do every day and i it's think that exactly that part right. is 
is so important. I mean, so many people. And and so, you know, again, you know, you, you brought it up getting into this, um, you know, at 57, if I'm not mistaken, it's a little later than most people get into a career, right? Let's be honest. It's, you know, mm-hmm. so how you said, you know, people look at you funny, they might say some things, you know, what, what has that done for you personally? You know, you've been doing this for a few years now, but like getting into it at, at a, at an older age, and I'm, I apologize, I'm not the best at having this conversation. So sorry about that. But like, what, like, how, how does, how does that make you feel? And like, how, how excited are you every day now? You know, obviously you did everything you could for your kids growing up. So we're not going to take anything away from you there, of course. But like, what, what is it like, you know, waiting, I guess, this long and then finally being able to do something. And now, you know, you're just going full into it because, hey, like, why not? Right. You're finally here. You made it. Yeah. Like, you know, I, as I was saying earlier, I never intended on being here today. You know, what is this eight years later? Um, and it was a one-off. It was, I've got to go do this. And now, you know, we're way down the road on this and we have plans for other things. So after we finish all the continents, we've got, I've got t- all these different ideas, right? Because there's no way we're stopping. And we, the cause of, of, for those kids being trafficked is still out there. So we've got all sorts of great ideas of how to go forward, but um, it just took, it's just, wow. How was it at this age? It just felt right. I felt right. And, you know, it's not coffee. I'm enthusiastic. I love what I'm doing. I feel honored to be able to be a part of this. I eat and drink and breathe this and it makes sense. Um, It just makes sense of who I am. I found out who I was through all this and like, wow, that's who I am. I didn't even know that. Right. And, and then my family has been really, really supportive and um, having that connection with them. And then everything about it just seems right. And, it just has come naturally and all of it has just come in time and slowly developed. And here we are. Um, and who knows what tomorrow will bring. Um, it just, it's just meant to be for me. It's just like, it was meant to be, and I'm living my purpose, what I was supposed to be doing. And I'm really thankful that I found that, that I was able to listen to that voice inside of me and get going on this and having that resonance and connection and to be here today. It's, it's phenomenal. I really, I feel blessed. I really do. It's it, really I'm, great. I'm grateful that you're grateful because again, you know, Hey, I, maybe it's not coffee, but I'll take all that energy that you're throwing this way. And hopefully everyone <laughs> listening is taking some of that because I think it's so important. And, you know, so what, like, do you, do you receive messages from people just saying like, Hey, you've inspired me because again, you know, so many people have that voice in their head that say, you know, I, if I could do one thing, it's this, mm-hmm. and then they never do it. Or they say, you know, one day it would be cool if I did this. And then, you know, maybe they get to 40, 45. And they're just like, nah, I can't do it. You know, that's well, I had to do that in my twenties, you know, and I can't do that now. And obviously you're completely shattering that by saying, no, no, no. Like why you could do this. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is put the energy into it. So do you receive messages? Do you know the people you're inspiring? Like, does that ever cross your mind at all? Understanding that you're going to have a huge impact not, and we'll get to the, the child trafficking part sure. but just for, for people in general, just to understand like, Hey, like I, I can be a model citizen for, for a group of people that think, you know, they might not be able to do something anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Michael, that so much is a part of it, right? And that's why we said, wow, we have a voice. It was a small voice, and I still believe it's a small voice, and and all we want to have a bigger voice. But it was when, you know, I remember being at a car show with our car after it had done maybe one race or something, and uh, this young girl came with her dad, and she was 16 or 17 years old, and she couldn't 
quit talking. And she kept saying, I'm so glad I met you. I'm hearing what you're saying. I can go do what I've been thinking about. You're giving me courage. You're, you're inspiring me to go try this, you know, and because everybody has hurdles and fears and things they think about doing and they're afraid to do. So yeah, for me, that's really, really rewarding to think of in any way that I could inspire people to go out and take on challenges or dreams or ambitions or face even a day of a meeting they got to go do with somebody and do a presentation or whatever. And they're so afraid of that thing, right? It's like, no, you know, you've got this, go out there and do it. And something I feel in myself and I tell people is if you have fear, use that fear confront that fear, tackle that fear, master that fear, utilize that, harness it, because that can empower you to do something way beyond yourself, way beyond you think you can do. And it will take you to places that you never imagined, teach you things about yourself you could never imagine. And it's really important to go and do things that I believe you're afraid to do. And and when people, I've had this relative one time say, Renee, why do you keep doing the La Carrera? You know what? If you tell me you're afraid and you still are afraid, but why are you doing it? So because I'm afraid, because I'm afraid, I have to go do it. That fear can't master you. And as long as you feel that fear, I'm going to go do it. And there's, and the other thing is there's always going to be that fear. Don't think it's going to go away. It's not going to go away. It may be different, but it won't go away and it'll just manifest itself in some other way. So that to me is like a big mantra, you know, find out what you're made of, go tackle your fears, confront them, go do it. For me, my faith in God has a huge, huge part of that. How I got through all that racing was literally on my knees, right? I just like, I couldn't believe where I was and what I was doing. And first day of my first race, someone got, you know, killed in their car or two brothers, someone died. So that's the reality when you, a lot of the times when you go do these races, but I really feel all the more reason to go do it. That's how I believe. And then, yeah, that's important. We've, we've showed up at the end of the day to race and there's a group, a lot of times it's women and they'll be there with their dads or their moms or their grandmas. And they're all ages from little to every generation. They're saying, thank you so much. Thank you for so much for doing this. You make me believe that I can go do this. That even though my culture says I can't, or my family says I can't, or I tell myself I can. So on many levels, it's super inspiring to me to be able to affect any kind of change in someone's life. That's positive like that. Yeah, um, just, you can tell I go on and on. I really, I, I, I really, yeah, you can just tell me to stop if I'm saying too much, Michael. Renee, I promise <laughs> you, everybody's here to listen to you. Nobody's here to listen to me talk. I'll ask a couple questions and believe me, I was just about to say, if we're going to have to get you on stage if you aren't already. Um, you know, I don't know how, how virtual talks are going to go, but I'm sure Deb and I will have a couple conversations. We'll figure okay. something out. But no, um, I mean, I just think it's, it's, it is awesome to see how how much you understand too that you're affecting people, right? Sometimes people are a little humble. It's like, oh, nobody's paying attention to me. But as you said, mm -hmm. you have a voice. It might be a small voice at this point, but you're already starting to see the change in other people. And you're starting mm -hmm. to see the effect you're having on other people. And when you can see that, right, that then gets the wheel turning a little bit more. So you're gonna mm -hmm. wanna do more and more. And as you said now, you know, we're racing on every continent. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to Antarctica soon and we'll talk about that in a second. And I think it's just... It is so fantastic what you've been able to accomplish at this point. And in eight years is really not that long of a time, right? Like when we put everything into perspective, it's not the longest period of time, but you've been able to enact so much change in other people. And I'm sure you're never going to meet all of them, right? That means you're doing a really good job because you're in, impacting so many people all over the place. It'll be too difficult. But 
understanding it and then being able to feed off those emotions, as you were saying before, you know, all those emotions in seven days, well, meeting these people and getting your juices flowing a little bit more and, and getting more of that coffee into your veins to get people to get excited. Mm -hmm. So that way you can go impact more people. It's just, it's that hamster wheel effect where that snowball is going to roll down the hill and it's going to just keep getting bigger and bigger. And more and more people are going to be on this train with you, pushing that story and pushing that energy and, and pushing you to go even further. So kudos and congratulations, Renee. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I'm so excited. So let's talk about which was let's talk about your car. You've brought it up a couple of times. So <laughs> you have you have a Porsche, right? Mm -hmm. 56 Porsche? Yep. Uh -huh. 56. So what is it about this car that you love just so much that you're willing to just put this poor thing through the ringer going all around <laughs> the world, letting it see all these incredible places? What is it about this car that that you just love so much and just keep driving it around everywhere. I had never seen a Porsche 356 before until 2011. And it was in that pursuit of, okay, now I got to go do this thing, race a car. What am I going to race? And my husband had a relative who had bought an old, we'll call it a beater 356 that he was going to restore. And I'd never seen, I just fell in love with that car. Love at first sight. It just, wow. It just, like hearken to something in in my spirit, like that car, it's got to be it. You know, I love the shape of it. And then when I heard him turn it over, the sound of it. And then when I got in it to feel it, you feel everything, right? And then just everything about it. And, and when I got to get one and then prepare it and be it, it just, you hear and feel everything in that car that's going on. And there's no save me features, I call them, you know, nothing that's going to, computer's not going to kick in and you know, correct your this or correct your that or adjust your suspension or keep you from going off the road. There's none of that. It's everything you put into that car, you get out of it. What you don't put into it, you're not going to get out of it. So it takes a huge amount of skill to drive that car competitively. And I love that part of it. I love that challenge of it. And then just uh, seeing that car change as we've gone and done different events from going from tarmac to going off road and it's been beat up. It's had big accidents, massive accidents. It's my whole life. This story is now in that car and all the emotions and the highs and lows. There's no way I can part with it. And you get that way. I probably with a car, especially one that you've done so many things and felt so many things in, um, it's just a, it's just a phenomenal car. And then it's just the history of that car, the way it looks like it's the harkens back to the fifties, which was for me seems like like the best time of year. If you could have lived in the fifties and been a race car driver, what would that have been like? You know, just how phenomenal is that? So to have that connection with history and to be able to drive that car now, it's, there's nothing like it. That car is, I love 911s. So believe me, I think they're fantastic, but being a 356 and how raw and rugged that is, it's another level. It's just a whole nother level. I think that's fantastic. And I love the reasoning behind it too, the, the skill that's needed for something. It's not like you're going into these races, as you said, with a lot of save me features. I really like how you put that too. You're going in where it's, it's you and that car mm -hmm. and the road. And those are the only things. And I think that, that, it brings it to another level, right? It's not like you just kind of went and bought the nicest car that, you know, everybody else has or even better. And now you're going to do this thing and you're talking about this mission and, you know, hey, I'm really trying to bring awareness and everyone's kind of looking at you like, what are you driving? Now they're looking at you like, what the hell are you driving? Why are you doing that? And I think it's fantastic when you bring it to that level, when you put yourself out there as much as you are understanding that it's just you, it is just you. And so 
like as you said that this the skill level needed to drive something like this especially in some of these races what is how many hours are you in that car before even you know your first race or just going into a race what is like i guess training look like mm. especially with no none you just yeah. well how do you train right i, thought, I don't know right when i first started I said oh gosh i've got to train right we got to train well i could never train in my car because it was being developed, right? Oh, we got to try to, you know, strengthen the suspension and we got to get rid of that rust or we got to fix this or fix that right in the car and put a roll cage in it. So, you know, every, it seemed like almost every year the car was ready the night before you had to put on the trailer to take it down there. And the first race, I remember telling my, my new team and saying, you know, this race is going to be my racing school. That's it. I've got to learn by doing this race. And then the other thing is, how do you train? Even if you have the car, where can you go out on a road? Let's say some curvy, treacherous mountain road. Take the whole road to yourself and go as fast as you dare. Where do you, when, do you, when can you do that? Right. There's oncoming traffic. There's police. There's all these other things. So there's really no way to train. And using a track is great in a sense to, to learn how the car feels. But in, an, in rally racing, you never see the same turn twice. You you can't memorize a track. I mean, it's days and days and thousands of stretches and turns, right? And the weather is constantly changing. You're going from you know fog where you can't see in front of you to blazing sun in your eyes and uh, washouts in road and coming across a corner with a herd of cows in front of you and figuring out what you're going to do with that. Um, there's boulders in the road. Everything is a dynamic environment. It's not a controlled environment like a track is. So there's really no way to really train other than going and doing these events. So, yeah, you just got to go out and do them and figure it out and learn from your mistakes, right? That's about yeah. it. My goodness. Kudos to you, Renee. That is incredible. I mean, the, the range of emotions that you go through, um, you know, having to be quick on your feet, as you're talking about. I mean, I rarely ever turn around a corner and there's a herd of cows there. So I can only imagine what that's like going at speeds that probably aren't meant for the road. Right. And and all these other things. So what like take us what's what's a day like in a rally race? Like what what are you going through? What are those thoughts? What are the the, the feelings and, and how? How do they come by? Like, like I, I don't even know how to ask the question because obviously I've never even really like been in one of these positions mm -hmm. before. But I, like, what's a day in the life like? You know, in, in especially in Mexico, considering you've ran that like, La Carrera, I think you've mm -hmm. ran that race multiple times. Like, what? Like now you're probably a little more used to it. But if you don't mind, maybe comparing that first one to the most recent one that you've done and kind of mm -hmm. how much you have matured as a racer and, and as a rally car driver and a, as a person as well. Mm -hmm. Again, going through a lifetime of emotions in only seven yeah. days, I'm sure, matures you a little bit on the inside. Right. A day in the life of a rally driver, right, in that car, um, you know, you need your sleep and you don't get a lot of it. At the law career, they always have these night meetings and you probably don't get back to your room and in your bed till 1130 or 12 at night. And then you're up about, you know, five or six. And there's a lot of, for me, stress. So trying to even sleep all night because you're thinking about the next day what's going to happen, but you say, no, you can't think about the what ifs, you know, get your sleep. Right. So then, and then you have to figure out how you're going to eat because you don't have time for finding a bathroom very rarely. Um, you know, you got to figure out how you're going to eat and keep your fuel up. And so, but you got to eat carefully. And there's so many things and the hydrating is a super big part of it. Um, unlike the men who are, they just, 
you look down and if you're lining up for your start time, they're along the side of the road with their backs to you. Well, I can't do that. So I've got to tromp off into some desert and try to find a rock or find a tree or a bush or something and then hope there's no one coming around a corner. So, And then you usually don't have any time. Like you're just racing that clock all the time. They never give you enough time to get from A to B. So even in the special stages where you're, you are going flat out, to get to those stages, you have to go flat out. So you're constantly racing the clock all day long. And it's super hot. You're wearing your all your race gear. You're perspiring profusely. It's really hot in the car. There's obviously no air conditioning. Um, and so there's a lot of discomfort, physical discomfort. And you got to focus on what's coming up. You know, you, you, and your, your rally dry, um, companion and your navigator is telling you, like, go faster here. We got to make up time or we're okay. We're on, we're on pace. We're okay. And then, oh, no, I, I figured it out wrong. We got to really hurry here and get up there fast. And then they're racing up to get your car to the front, and get you clocked in in time. Because if you're not, you get penal- penalized, right? They take time away from you. So in this kind of a race, it, it is about how fast you are in all those stages. But then you can get dock time if you break rules or different things happen, right? It's just really intense. It's nonstop adrenaline and nonstop going. And you catch it any kind of uh, emotions, highs and lows, you just got to box them, put them away. You, you got to stay level. You got to stay focused. You got to stay in harmony with your navigator. If you make a mistake, if they make a mistake, doesn't matter. We're a team. So you got to be super tight on that whole team thing. We do this and we do that and our success. And so you've got to keep the, the, the charisma in the car is super important, you know, and then you, and then you, sometimes those speed sections are long. And it's one thing to be out there for two, three, four minutes at a time or however long it takes to go around, you know, in, in a typical race, but you can be doing a hundred miles like in East Africa, you're doing a hundred miles, but you've got to go as fast as you can for a hundred miles through mud, through sand, through zebras, through whatever, right? People on, and in Africa, you had oncoming traffic, you had traffic as well as animals. So it takes an immense amount of mental focus and it's super draining. And it, I, I, my experience has, has been if the race was a week, it takes a week to get back to normal when you get home because you're just on this big slump. Your emotions and everything just crash. And if it was 36 days, it takes 36 days to get your mind and your life back to normal. It's just intense all day, every day. And um, it's just in, in a lot of focus, tons and tons of focus. Um, I hope I answered your question. <laughs> it sounds like you love it, though. Oh, gosh, yeah. That's Absolutely. just, I mean... Just talking about zebras and oncoming traffic. I mean, I'm scared listening to you talk. I mean, what is it like for you in there? I mean, again, like understanding, as you said, you have to keep that, your mental focus has to be sharp because you're going fast. There's a lot of obstacles. You, as you said, people die almost seems like on a consistent basis, unfortunately. So how, like you can't really let, as you said, you got to unbox those emotions out. But, you know, like scared probably is not an emotion that you can let in. Does that ever creep into your mind or at least in the beginning, was that something that kind of gave you cause for concern or is it now like, have you grown over it? Like what, what is that like? Cause that sounds terrifying where I'm sitting here in my basement, um, you know, in an air conditioned house right now compared to what you're doing, uh, on, on the raceway. Yeah, no, the, uh, fear, of course. Yeah. I'm, I'm always afraid in some races you're more afraid than others. Um, the La Carrera in particular, probably because that was my first race, is way up there for um, intense kind of dealing with that 
but you do, I deal with that beforehand, before you go down, it's like, okay, I'm going to be doing this. You know, it's risky. Are we, are we going back? Yes, we're going back. Okay, here we go. Right. But when you're in it, yeah. Do I sometimes still at the start um, or in the mornings? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you're, I do. And, and for me, it's prayer. I pray about all that stuff. I have to, just to get that peace and tranquility. Other people probably meditate or do th- other things. But um, yeah, that's a big part of it. But during the day, when you come across something, fear is not, a, you can't have fear if you're seeing some obstacle. You, it's like problem solved. I got I to gotta do this. What am I going to do? And you can't focus on it because just like if you're riding a bicycle and you see a, a rock in the road, if you focus on that rock, your tire is going to hit that rock, right? So you got to look where you want to go, not where you are going or where you might go or where you don't want to go. So even that obstacle, you see it, but you don't see it. You had to process that and we're going to execute where we're going to do, how are we going to solve this problem? And um, it's so, yeah. And then even sometimes at the end of the race, there's so much built up to it. And you're maybe on that podium and you're winning. Sometimes it's hard to feel the joy of that until afterwards because you're still like in the car with your hands on the wheel and you're still going, right? You haven't been able to really enjoy that moment of, wow, we're finished and here's what we've achieved. So it's just super intense. Um, I, it's it's not for everybody, but I, I love it. You feel more alive. For me, I feel more alive. You're more in tune to all your emotions, who you are, your existence, you know, your frailness, your your mortality or your immortality, um, all of that. It's, you know, it's before you at all, the, at all times, right? But not your focus. <laughs> yeah, no. And it sounds like, again, you are very, you know, spot on with the focus aspect of it because that's the most important part. And, and I really love how you said it before. Like, don't let, you know, you can't have fear. You can't be afraid because if you have any of that, that is when things mess up. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, you probably have those jitters. You got those butterflies in your stomach and your chest, maybe coming up a little bit through your throat. But once you're out there, as you said, you know, you're just, you're just ready to go and you have, you, you cannot have those worries. You cannot have those emotions because that is what's going to be the end of you. And as you said, your mortality or your immortality so far, you're, you're staying immortal for us, Renee. So I really do appreciate that. So keep doing what you're doing there. And so one thing, um, we spoke about a little bit was the the child trafficking and so how tell me i guess the the, the order of events was it hey you know we we did this race and now we want to bring you know this opportunity to it so we decided to go and try and race on every continent or like like how did how did the the idea to combine you know racing on every continent and raising awareness globally work with hey you know child trafficking is very important all over the world so the idea makes sense but i guess what was the what came first i guess the chicken or the egg situation at both it just they they sort of came together at the same time so when we were going to mexico we were taking down goods and giving money and getting involved with the children down there but then through that time period i got exposed to trafficking to uh, child pornography, which feeds into child sex trafficking. They go hand in hand. I met a guy in the FBI and um, we were on a tour bus together and we were just chatting across the island. He told me about his job and he proceeded to tell me what he does and how he goes undercover and tries to arrest people who are producing pornography of kids and selling kids and then get them convicted, right? And I knew nothing about this. And 
Of course, my reaction was shock and just disgusted and horrified. And then to find out, you know, he was working in Florida and where it, it's all over the country and what goes on. And then learning about that and then learning about child trafficking and, you know, trafficking is a lot of things. It's labor and it's sex and it's lots of different things. Right. And, um, just learning about it. And then after I met him, it wasn't too long after that, I was sat next to a gentleman on a Hertz bus going to a, a Hertz lot to pick up a rental car, sat down next to him. And I just look over and he has his phone out and I look over at the image and he's got a pornographic image of a child on his phone. And I'm thinking, okay, some, this is knocking on my door. I don't believe in coincidence. I've had these two happen in a short period of time. What's going on here? So it was like, okay, I need to do something about that. And that's how, and when that was happening, it's at the same time we said, we got to do more with this car. And it just all was birthed together. It came together and was developed together. So we did Project 356 World Rally Tour. We're attempting to make a world record by taking one car on all the continents. We're attempting a land speed record in Antarctica by by racing on a blue ice runway. And then all along the way, we're um, speaking about child trafficking and we're raising money and giving money in all these places as we go around the world, donating funds to NGOs that are doing grassroots work and all of this. So it just came together. You know, I'd like I said, it wasn't an accident. It just, but it was just came together and it was born together. Yeah, I, I am exactly with you. I don't believe in coincidence. I don't think it, it you know, it's, I don't believe in luck, which is a different part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but I definitely do not believe in coincidences because, again, there's no, there, what are the chances, right? Like those two things happen and there's not a reason for you to do something with it because, you know, these two incidents happen with those those uh, different men on buses at the same time, I think you said, which is kind yeah, of, exactly. yeah, that's interesting. Sure. That, that alone is already, all right, we're, we're starting to get somewhere, but the fact that you were already starting to think, you know, what can we do with this car? How can we start to impact people around the world? How can we start to impact more people through what I'm doing? And again, you know, this voice that is going to start growing because you could see that it was going to start growing because you love it so much and the intensity that you bring. That's why I'm, I don't mind you talking. I mean, I never mind people talking on the show, but I love listening to you talk because you're so passionate about all of these different things. And it's so much fun for me. My favorite thing to do is listen to people who are very passionate about something because mm. whether it's something I understand or not, it's, it's, uh, you get that energy, you get that feeling. And now, as I said, I, I want some of that coffee that you're drinking. It just turns out it's passion. So <laughs> I, I think, you know, I agree with you on how, you know, it's, it's really cool how all of these things, as you said, kind of came together at the same time and has allowed you to now come up with these different projects, come up with these different ideas. And so what are some of the successes you've seen? You know, how much, uh, how much money have you been able to raise? How much awareness have you been able to raise for these problems around the world? And, and what have you seen, I guess, with your eyes that, you know, you start, you, you know, you, because you keep doing it, right? So clearly there's something happening that's mm -hmm. making you want to do it more. So, mm -hmm. so what are some of those successes that you've had so far? Well, as far as on the, on the financial end, we've been raising money for a couple of years now, and we've raised over $200,000. That doesn't seem maybe like a lot when you think about the global problem, right? So trafficking, human trafficking in general, is the second largest illegal business in the world behind drug trafficking. And it's massive, the scale of that. Um, and, it, you know, the amount of people that affects around the world. So that's what we've raised. We have a goal of raising a million dollars in total by the time we're finished with the, the project 356. And um, 
we've given money in in several countries, many, many, probably like 12 countries so far. And even during COVID right now, a lot of these places, it's really hurting them. The girls are still being trafficked and exposed to people. So they haven't been able to isolate or be quarantined. So their exposure to COVID is not only are they exposed to all the other things they go through, but now COVID. So we've upped um, our giving as we can right now with the people calling out needing more money. But um, I've also had the opportunity to um, be a part of an investigative team. So we have three, we believe we have three things, right? We have our time, we have our talent, and we have our, our resources or our money. And we endeavor to invest all three of those. So I've gone down and um, to, in Southeast Asia and been a part of an investigative team working hand in hand with locals that work with lo- local law enforcement who are developing a case, but they need foreign foreigners to go in to these places to procure sex from kids. So many times it's, it's um, especially in the, in the larger cities and all it's foreigners, right? From all over the world, all over Asia, Europe, you know, the United States, everywhere. And so I've had the opportunity to go in with a team and get photographic and video um, information, evidence to give to the police to strengthen their case. Uh, and we go in into all these places, um, I guess they call them go-go bars and brothels and try to find kids, you know, find the ones who are hiding, you know, in the corners or hiding behind their hair or modest and hiding their bodies and try to find those kids and then get evidence that we can then arrest the people that are doing the trafficking. And then at that point, what happens is they go in, they go into the establishment, they arrest the people that are doing the trafficking, and then those those people, whether they're children or um, young adults, women or men, boys or girls, and say, okay, if this isn't what you want to be doing, what do you want to do and how can we help you? If you've been you know, lied to, brought here thinking you're going to work in a restaurant or in a hotel or do something else in the hospitality industry, now this is what you were made to do, do you want to go home? You know, do you want to go home and back to your family? Or do you need to be repatriated? Were you brought across a border? Do you need a job skill? How can we give you a job skill? So you try to give them a second chance in life. Some of them want, if they're women who've been doing this, they started out with their kids, but now they've been doing this for 10 years. They just, you know, want to stay there. So you, okay, that's your choice. If this is your choice. But a lot of times these people have had their passports taken away. They have a huge debt they can never pay back because you have to make so much money every day to pay the debt. And if you don't, there's more debt, right? So they, they can never get out. So that's what I had the opportunity to get to do in January. And then we've gone and visited people that do or organizations that actually work with the kids that are being trafficked. So that was really great. To, and Kenya, we were able to meet with people. We were able to meet with people in Mongolia. Um, we supported people in Russia. And then we may try to make site visits to all those places. And we do double and triple vetting of them from people who are involved internationally that know who's doing good grassroots work, who's doing honest work. We give all, every dollar goes to that agency. Anything administrative or um, anything to do any of this. Even my investigative work is paid for privately or through Valkyrie Racing. So all dollars that come in go out to the NGO that we vetted. And we only support organizations that have a tried and true positive record of affecting change and doing good work. And um, and it's not the white savior going in. We work with the locals and nationals that are the ones on the ground doing the work. 
They're the ones that care. Those are their kids. That's their country. And so it's really important that you partner with those individuals. And then you don't want to be, we don't want to be supporting massive research projects and big salaries and all that. So our money doesn't go there. So um, the best thing for me, I have so many memories of like being in, in Kenya and meeting survivors that are now running these organizations and being advocates or doing counseling, being in Southeast Asia, holding girls' hands telling them they're beautiful, telling them they're talented, giving them a hope. They don't know why we're there, but at least for one moment in their life or one night in their life, they have light, they have love, they have someone who's not preying on them, but someone who's just smiling with them and telling jokes and letting them be a child, you know? One one girl that we were with, her, um, they, they don't use Facebook, they use um, a different kind of app. And she'd only been in that that place for about a month. And I think she's probably 14 or 15. Her image of for herself, because people will, you know, you what do you put on your Facebook yourself or with your dog or with your family, right? She had Tweety Bird with chains wrapped around Tweety Bird. And that was her. That was her representation. And so, you know, the fact that we were there and we were able to get evidence and give that to the police, the fact that we could spend time with her and show her compassion and respect her as an individual, as a human, not as a product that we are trying to buy. I mean, those, those kinds of memories, I mean, those, and you know, you see depraved human beings in those places, but you just want to, don't want to remember those things, but to remember those youthful, innocent faces and those smiles and those giggles and those moments that were so precious, you know, those are the things you hold on to. And just to have that experience, um, I'm, I'm looking forward. We're going to go down again a couple more times this year, once to South America and then once back to Asia. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I feel so honored to be able to be able to do that. So uh, I don't know. Did I answer your question? It doesn't matter. That was an incredible, um, incredible story. I mean, you, the, the fact that you're going boots on the ground to some of these places into dangerous locations. And I, I feel like these are not, you know, again, you're, you're, you're going to places where this is already a possibility. I feel like they're not very safe. Uh, I'm sure you're secure and I'm sure there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of protocols around that, but that is just incredible that you're willing to do that. You know, not only just, you know, there's so many people like that are willing to give money. There's mm-hmm. obviously, you know, that's a great thing. And I'm, I'm yeah. say that's ever bad, right? That's amazing. But the fact that you're now willing to then go on top and go be in within that investigation and start to take down some of these rings and start to take some of these children back and actually being there with them and seeing their faces, as you said, mm-hmm. that is just an incredible, incredible thing to do. So thank you for doing that, Renee, because again, you know, one person can't fix all of this. Um, and it's probably, as you said, it's the second biggest in the world. So it's going to take a very, very long time to take it down. But the more you're doing, the more you're helping. And as you said, now you get to see their faces and you get to laugh with them and, and help them be children again, which I think is the most important thing. And so thank, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. I think that's amazing. And on top of the intensity that you already go through with these races now, I mean, you know, that's probably great practice uh, to get into something like that. Right. And as you said, keep your head on a swivel, always be, you know, no fear. Like a lot of these things, I feel like that comes full circle a little bit. It really lines up to allow you to be able to do something like this. And you've earned this opportunity, as you said. And, you know, so I think it's, it's, it's amazing that you're able to do something like that. So kudos and congratulations there. I think that's incredible. Yeah, thanks a lot. You know, you, <laughs> they have signs all over the inside these establishments, no cameras, no videos, you know, plastered. And there we are with our hidden cameras. And 
or you know yeah. having special apps on our phone that have a that use a camera without looking like you're using your mm-hmm. camera and then you know I, you know they'll search your bag before you walk in some of these places and you know you can't miss a beat you say yeah here take my purse you know go ahead look through it and you know there's a hidden you know there's a small little device in there right that's recording all that but you've got it tucked in this little pocket and you well, I hope they don't look too deeply right but yeah you just I do agree what you said it's true that raising experience has definitely enabled me to to do this as well and um yeah it's worked really well together it's it's great <laughs> amazing it's amazing you're amazing renee and the last thing i do want to bring up racing one last time and again we, we've kind of teased it a little bit and it's definitely something that i do want to bring up the fact that and, and you brought it up a bit before you're trying to break the land speed record in antarctica correct mm-hmm. yeah there really isn't an official that i know of land speed record in antarctica um the people that we're, go- we're partnering with to do this event uh, two gentlemen, Jason Carteret and Kieran Bradley, both of them polar explorers, both of them uh, Guinness World Record holders for different kinds of events. Um, super accomplished, amazing, amazing individuals. I'm really honored to be able to even be working with them. And uh, so Jason has led over 60 expeditions all over the world, but mostly to either of the poles. And he'll be in the car with me. He can look at that ice and say, we're going here and we're not going there, you know, because he can read the ice and what it looks like. And it's like in those Inuit languages or in those um, indigenous languages for a lot of these places where there is like in the northern polar um, area, there are dozens of words to describe all the different types of ice. There's a reason. And and Jason knows that. He's cross-country skied it. He's driven it. He has the record with Kieran of, of, of the shortest amount of time driving to the pole, the South Pole. So, And then Kieran is our engineer and fabricator. Amazing guy. Um, he's learned so much with what they've done going to the South Pole in a truck that he's able to apply that to this car. And then with Tuthill Porsche, who's been with us on all the journeys in my 356, who knows everything and the weaknesses and strengths of my car, right? Coupled with Kieran and his engineering experience at the poles. His, so he's working on the development of the car. And then Jason is taking care of all our logistics and we'll be camping down there. Um, what we need to wear, you know, forget the heater. The heater will be pointless. It's extra weight. Plus it's not going to do anything anyway. Um, but he will be uh, with us down there in the car with us and then doing all the logistics and taking care of all that. So, wow. Um, I have no idea what I'm in for. He keeps saying, Renee, this is going to be the most beautiful and dangerous one yet. And until you've done it, how do you know, right? So I'm saying, okay, Jason, okay, Jason. Um, so yeah, that's hopefully going to happen this winter unless COVID prevents us from going down. Um, we can't travel, but right now we're slated to be down there this winter. Um, we'll be flying in on a Russian cargo plane out of Chile with a car, um, landing on a blue ice runway um, at Union Glacier, which is in the interior area of Antarctica. And then we will chart out in advance, hopefully, our 356 miles to commemorate the 350, the 356, right? Got to commemorate the car, and that's what we'll be doing is 356 miles. And then separate to that, the car has to be totally modified. So when they drove to the South Pole, they had massive tires. I don't know if they were 38 or 40-inch, right? Mm-hmm. Massive, because you can't sink. 
Um, that's the main thing. You can't sink in the ash. You want you have to glide along the top of it and basically have no imprint. So in my car, because of the size of it and its compactness and its weight, we have to do skis in the front. We were we were looking at the big huge tires, but there would be no car. We would have to cut out every wheel well so much that there'd be no side of the car left. There wouldn't even be a door to the car. So we couldn't do that. So we have to do skis in the front and tracks in the back, which is a challenge in itself to get those things working. And then to do the speed record, we'll take those off, put tires on, set of tires, and see how fast we can go in the ice. And we're applying for with the Guinness uh, World Record people to see if we can get a record down there. But, you know, that's the final journey. And, um, yeah, hopefully that's this winter. That's amazing. Far from the final journey, though. I feel like there's a lot of other stuff you've got. Uh, okay. I'm sure there's some more stuff that you got going on up there. But, Renee, that, that in itself is just absolutely incredible. This entire story, thank you so much for your time today. This has been an absolute blast just getting to hear your story, what you've done, how you're impacting people literally around the world in more ways than one. But you're allowing those two things that you love so much to just interlock their hands. And pretty much you're just taking it from there. So, Renee, this has been absolutely fantastic. Renee, Brinkerhoff, rally racer and philanthropist, owner, mm -hmm. creator, founder of Valkyrie Racing and Valkyrie Giving. Renee, thank you so much for your time today. Michael, thanks a lot. Thanks, everybody. I really, really enjoyed this. Thank you. Ciao. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this episode with Renee. As I said, she is just absolutely incredible. What she's doing, how she's doing, I think is amazing. Everything is in the show notes. Make sure to go check it down there to see more about her race car, about her, about her nonprofit. Everything that she's doing will be down there. Please make sure to give us a five-star review if you're listening on Apple or iTunes. Please also make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at MichaelRazil1 and check me out on LinkedIn. Doing some fun stuff over there as well. So thank you all so much. It's the only thing, time is the only thing we don't get more of. And I appreciate you giving me some of yours. And I hope you make it a wonderful day.